welcome to Nature's Edge, the show that shares the excitement, knowledge, and adventures of our natural world. My name is Dale Stewart. Our guest today is a prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author whose books have won a multiple, multiple uh, awards. The National Academies of Science named his 2004 book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. His book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, won the Francis Parkman Prize of the Society of American Historians for the year's best book of American history. And the New York Public Library named it one of the best 50 books in the last 50 years, including fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. John Barry, welcome to Nature's Edge. Well, thanks for having me on. John, I know you're also, besides uh, a very accomplished author, you're very involved in issues that are very dear uh, to my heart, and that's uh, water issues and, and rivers and streams and so forth. And I know that, um, and, and you're also involved with uh, uh, the, the new development that's going on, I think at Tulane University with, uh, r- with Riversphere. Um, and that, that's a new facility that's, that's really going to be dedicated to river research. Could you tell me a little about Riversphere? Well, we're, it's, we're trying to get it going. Uh, before Katrina, it was a very high priority for the university. Uh, the storm kind of knocked things back a little bit, but it, it, it's, it's alive and uh, trying to raise some money and build. Uh, right now they have... Uh, some riverfront property right on the edge of downtown for for those people who uh, know New Orleans. It's actually immediately adjacent and upriver from the convention center, uh, and we're doing some building on that. There, there's already a lot of river research going on both at Tulane and, of course, elsewhere in the state of Louisiana, and be great to put it together in one place. Oh, absolutely. And I know you're very involved and, and have been involved for some time with water issues in Louisiana. And, and of course, my listeners know Louisiana is my my uh, birthplace and home, and uh, and I'm very uh, involved as well. Could could we just talk about some of the uh, some of the issues, particularly with water and with uh, flood protection that are that are facing not only New Orleans but South Louisiana as a whole? Uh, sure. After uh, Katrina, the Levy Board Protecting New Orleans was reorganized, uh, and the idea was to take the politics out of it. Everybody who had been on it was a political appointee, served at the pleasure of the governor, and uh, passed a state constitutional amendment to change it and put a lot of flood experts on it. Uh, We have people from literally coast to coast, from the University of North Carolina, uh, someone who wrote the most sophisticated storm surge model in the world. Uh, we did have from uh, California the head of floodplain management for the state of California, some real uh, past president of the American Society of Civil Engineers is on it, real experts. And uh, I probably knew less than anybody else on the board, but I was on that levy board. The state also has something called the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, which is responsible for uh, hurricane protection for the entire state. Um, I was on that as well. Uh, and the levy board, uh, we there's been a tremendous amount of coastal land loss in Louisiana. It's lost roughly 2,000 square miles 
of land that's equivalent to the state of Delaware. If you put Delaware between New Orleans and the ocean, it uh, wouldn't need any levees at all. All yeah. that land that used to be out there that's gone now, that was a buffer for the entire state against har- hurricanes. It absorbed storm surge. And the levee board, looking at the challenges to uh, protect the metropolitan area going out into the future, uh, we felt we needed to do something about the coast. And you, there are multiple causes of that land loss. Uh, the levees themselves are one reason. Uh, sediment uh, decline. Uh, all the land from the Gulf of Mexico, from Mexico all the way north to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, was actually made by the deposit of sediment on the Mississippi River. Uh, and that sediment is a lot of that sediment is now sitting behind dams on the Upper Missouri River. Uh, Hundred million tons a year it's taken out of the river there. So you've got those causes, you've got navigation, uh, you know, international commerce, but you also have the oil industry. That's one of the major causes of land loss. They dredged 10,000 miles of canals uh, through coastal Louisiana. Every inch of those canals let salt water intrude, killed plants that was holding the coast together, and basically the land melted into the ocean. Uh, the industry trade association down here itself did a study of part of the state and concluded that for that part of the state, quote, the overwhelming cause, unquote, of land loss was oil and gas operations. Uh, and the levy board, trying to figure out, I mean, how to protect the city, we decided to sue the oil industry. 97 oil companies. It's very specific. We weren't throwing mud at a wall. We can tell you almost to the square foot who was operating on what canal and why we sued them. Um, We did that in July 2013, and that created a huge political uproar in the state of Louisiana, which, of course, is an oil and gas state. And uh, there was a piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine uh, about two months ago, uh, October 5th, if anybody's interested and wants to check it out, it sort of gives a background to that. And anyway, we're trying to get the oil industry, which not only did the damage, which admits that it did the damage, and their permits and state law also required them to mitigate in some cases fully repair any damage they did. We're just trying to get them to live up to their word and to uh, state law. I think that if we were to do that statewide, if they, uh, there would be tremendous amount of money to uh, actually protect people's lives and preserve what's left of the coast. Uh, the 2,000 square miles that's gone is not coming back. Right. Uh, that cannot be restored. Uh, and frankly, what we have today, I don't think all of it can be saved. But we can save a lot of it, and we can rebuild the coast in front of uh, populated areas uh, to provide some hurricane protection. The state did develop the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, has developed uh, a master plan, 
which has been praised by scientists, environmentalists, and passed by the state legislature unanimously. Uh, that's a the price tag in theory is fifty billion dollars, but there was a recent study that said it would actually take ninety four billion dollars to build that. There's not not nearly enough money in the kitty to pay for that plan. So we have a real funding problem. John, uh, a huge you, gap. We've got about a minute left. Where does the uh, where does the lawsuit stand right now? I, it was filed in in 2013, right? That's correct. And uh, the state legislature passed a law retroactively to kill the lawsuit. Uh, a state court has ruled that that law is unconstitutional. Uh, meanwhile, in federal court, the defendants have filed motions to dismiss. Uh, we think we'll win those motions. Uh, the arguments were just finished a week ago, and we're waiting for the federal judge to rule on that. Uh, right now, I think we're in a pretty good shape, but you know, politics still has an art could in, could intrude and screw things up. I think in court we're in great shape, and politically remains a little dicey. Absolutely. Well, we're we're having a discussion with Mr. John Barry. Uh, who is an award-winning uh, and prize-winning uh, New York Times best-selling author and also uh, someone with a lot of interest in rivers and water issues, particularly in, uh, in Louisiana. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and we will return after this break. Welcome back. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge. We're having a discussion today with Mr. John Barry. John is a uh, prize-winning uh, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, we, we're going to, at some point today, talk a little bit about, about his book, but right now we're talking about uh, wetlands loss in Louisiana, uh, what's being done. And, and John, before we had our last break, we were talking a little bit, you had mentioned the master plan that uh, was in place in Louisiana, and I was, I'm curious about uh, like a lot of plans, are there timelines in place for this to be implemented, and, and sort of what are the, the main issues of the plan? Well, the the key to the plan probably, there are two things. Number one, uh, it's designed to put sediment back into uh, the wetlands so that they will be sustained, uh, and also to build some land. You do that two ways. Number one, uh, you put you build diversions. You cut a hole in the levee and the, let the river run out. That's the way the land was built naturally. Uh, that takes a long time, however. Uh, in addition, and this is the most expensive part of the plan, you would build some slurry pipelines to get the sediment into these areas much more quickly. Yeah. Uh, but that, if the pipelines themselves, that would not be sustainable. That Without river sediment continually feeding that area, they would eventually uh, dissipate. So the real answer is is the diversions, I think. John, is the Corps of Engineers bought into that? Oh, yeah. They, they uh, the, you know, the, the state on this issue is, is working with the Corps. There is a lengthy permitting process through all this stuff. Uh, you know, there is there friction? Sure, there's a lot of friction. Oh, sure. Uh, but the goal is the same, and certainly uh, the Corps recognizes that this is the only 
something that is going to work over time. And the master plan, um, it it has been adopted by the uh, legislature. Yeah, uh, every five years it is it gets revised. Uh, Twenty twelve uh, was the last time the legislature passed it. There's an annual plan in addition. Uh, the state talks about adaptive management, in other words, recognizing if we start down one path and it turns out it's not the right path, that uh, you make some changes in the plan. Um, hopefully all this stuff will work out the way it's supposed to. The reality is, uh, for long before I ever thought of the lawsuit I mentioned in the earlier segment, which ignited a political firestorm, Long before that, I, I used to go around saying the engineering is really difficult, yeah. but the politics is much more difficult than the engineering. So true. Uh, and when you when you get down to actually building projects, some people are going to be left out. Some people are going to be disrupted by the projects themselves. And Believe me, the next time the master plan goes to the state legislature, it is not going to be a unanimous vote. The last time, it was really pretty much conceptual, but when we get more and more into the concrete and some difficult choices need to be made, that's when the politics is really going to enter the fray. Uh, there will be enough money to get started because of the BP spill. Uh, there is going to be, no one knows the exact number, but certainly, worst case, probably, uh, you know, several billion dollars, uh, which is certainly going to be enough to do planning and, and you know, the engineering work and, and, and actually probably build some of the projects. Uh, but to keep it going over time, because it's actually a 50-year plan. Right. Uh, then it would need more funding. Is there a timeline, John, for when this might actually something might start being done? Well, they've actually, you know, there are Beyond some the plan? been done already yeah. in the last four or five years. Okay. Uh, but it, you need to uh, gear things up and scale up. And most of the engineering concepts have been demonstrated in projects around the world, but they've never been scaled up. And we don't know where there's symbiosis between projects. We're trying to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, we and we don't. You know, it's it's you, you put, do it on this scale. It, it's new science. Well, it is. It's uh, it, it it is that. It's uh, it it and it's and I think it's changing science somewhat uh, as well. I want to ask you. We've got. Uh, uh, a little bit. I, I have had a number of people ask me because they know I'm from Louisiana about uh, about New Orleans and about Katrina and uh, what has happened in New Orleans since Katrina. Could you give us a little overview, uh, kind of how is New Orleans recovering, and also a little well, bit. Well, New about Orleans is is actually way ahead of any of the post storm projections in terms of the recovery. Good. Uh, economically, it's it's much more uh, dynamic than anybody imagined it would be. Uh, a lot of uh, people in their 20s and 30s had gravitated to the city after the storm to help rebuild it from all over the country. Uh, I don't think anyone anticipated that. There's a, an entrepreneurship in the city that never existed before, or very little of it, frankly. 
by the same token, I think there's a little bit of overconfidence in the new flood protection system. Uh, first, your listeners may know, I hope they know, that most of the city was flooded because of design failures by the Corps of Engineers. Uh, the new system will work as designed. However, it is only a so-called 100-year protection. And that sounds great, but it's almost an Orwellian phrase because it implies safety that doesn't exist. Right. Uh, I give you a sense of comparison. There have been 400-year floods on the lower Mississippi River in the last 86 years. So when you talk about 100-year protection, Statistically, it just it's weak. And to give you a comparison of level of safety, uh, the Dutch protect themselves to a ten thousand year standard, uh, multiple times much greater factor of safety than the Louisiana standard, or which is the U.S. standard. Uh, in fact, I find it aggravating that New York, which certainly can afford better protection, they're planning a hundred uh, system. To protect them themselves against a hundred-year storm—that that is just a, uh, an incredibly low standard protection. Yeah, it seems uh, to be. Yeah, so we have some. Anybody who understands flood protection has concerns there. I think uh, so-called five hundred-year standard is achievable and affordable in Louisiana, and uh, in, in fact, the master plan does provide five hundred-year protection for the metropolitan area. Not for the whole state, however. We've got a little over a minute left, John. I want to ask you, if if, if we have another Katrina in uh, in New Orleans, ha- are you comfortable with the steps that have been taken since uh, since the last Katrina will mitigate? Uh, well, frankly, the system that was built would not protect against a Katrina. Things mm. would be a lot better, uh, but there would still be plenty of flooding. Yeah. Uh, one thing that would be different is you would not have levee failures where they just simply cr- collapsed. And when that happens, that's when you get a wall of water coming over that may be 15 or 20 feet high, uh, which is terrifying and deadly. Uh, the difference is if you did have another Katrina, uh, then you would get overtopping of the levees, but they would—they're built well enough now that they would—they would hold. So you wouldn't get that incredibly fast rise of water, but you would still get overtopping, and there would still be plenty of places in the city with a lot of flooding if you got another Katrina. Yeah. Lots of storms you're you're protected against, but I you just heard me a moment ago saying that hundred year. Uh, storm is is not a great level of protection people on the upper mississippi river know the same thing they had 200 year storms you know in, in less than 20 years 93 and then a few years ago no i know i, I remember 93 uh i was actually living outside of st louis when that one happened and that was uh pretty devastating to see it from a satellite it, it kind of turned the midwest into a into another great lake this is dale stewart You are listening to Nature's Edge, and we're going to take a short break, and we will be back with our guests after these messages. Welcome back. This is Dale Stewart. 
and you are tuned into Nature's Edge. Our special guest today is Mr. John Barry. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, John is a is a well-known uh, prize-winning and New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he also he wrote a book a few years ago called The Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America. And if I'm not mistaken, that book won the, the Francis Parkman Prize of the Society of American uh, Historians for the year's best book of American history. I think I mentioned that early on. And since, since you wrote that, uh, John, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Mississippi River uh, system as a whole. Would you mind uh, talking about that a little bit and how that impacts what's happening in South Louisiana? I'm sure. Uh you know, most people, when they think of the river, they think of essentially a straight line that starts in Minnesota and flows almost due south and exits in New Orleans. When I think of the river, I actually think of the entire system, uh, which starts near Buffalo, New York, and goes into the Rockies, uh, into Montana, to the Continental Divide. Uh, it is sort of a funnel. Uh, almost from Buffalo to the Rockies, and then gets increasingly narrow. Uh, it drains 31 states and two Canadian provinces. Uh, Pittsburgh has access to the ocean by water because of the Mississippi River. Uh, places like Kansas City and Tulsa are actually ports because of the Mississippi River. And then the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway uh, runs from Texas across to Florida, which connects the entire Gulf to the Mississippi River uh, through a protected system. You can use barge traffic. You don't have to go out onto the uh, ocean where you're vulnerable to uh, storms. And uh, this whole thing needs to be considered in a comprehensive way. Earlier I, I mentioned briefly that one of the problems created down here was the construction of uh, some dams on the upper Missouri. Uh, there are, according to the Corps of Engineers, 40,000 dams on the entire Mississippi River system. Uh, but just six out of 40,000 dams on the upper Missouri retain nearly, probably actually a little over, one quarter of all the sediment that used to go down the Mississippi River. Uh, so I said earlier, about 100 million tons a year. Uh, and and that is a factor in the land loss down here. I'm not saying that those dams should be torn down, but I am saying that when people in Montana and the Dakotas and Nebraska, uh, when, when their representatives in Congress, most of whom are Republican, uh, when they look at the problem down here, they need to recognize that, the benefits that they have gotten in flood protection and hydroelectric power from those dams uh, have created problems down here, and, and I think it is a national responsibility uh, for that and other reasons, and the interstate commerce and thing, international commerce, uh, which serves that entire system. It's, a, it's an enormous system. It's uh, essentially tied for the second biggest uh, river system in the world. Yeah, it, it is a huge, uh, huge uh, water system that, uh, you know, I'm like you. I think most people just, just think of the Mississippi River as that river that starts up close to Canada somewhere and 
kind of follows a, a path down to the Gulf, but we know it's it, we know it is much much more than that. Um, John, I, the, as we as we talk about these river systems and 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 what's going on, why should people in other areas of the country have an interest in what's happening in South Louisiana? Well, I think if an you know invading nation took two thousand square miles of America, I think they'd get pretty upset. I think so. Uh, uh, but if you want to, I never make the arguments based on the culture of New Orleans and things like that, which I think is nice to preserve, uh, but pure self-interest. Uh, the fact is roughly 20% of the refining capacity in the United States is in Louisiana. Almost all of that is in within easy reach of hurricane storm surge. Uh, natural gas from the Gulf uh, goes up pipelines to New York and Boston, Portland, Maine, uh, in the whole East Coast, uh, that would be disrupted if uh, the wetlands con- continue to disintegrate. Uh, if you remember after Katrina, uh, gas prices shot up almost a dollar a gallon. That was because those refineries were knocked out. Eighteen uh, percent of all the waterborne commerce in America goes through Louisiana waters. You know, sixty percent of the grain exports that the U.S. has goes out through past New Orleans. Uh, so the Midwest, the agricultural economy, all sorts of things are dependent on South Louisiana and the coast surviving. Yeah. And the reality is if the land loss continues, the area is not going to survive. And that's not to yeah. mention the seafood industry. Uh, the yeah, I mean, a huge percentage of the commercial fish caught in the U.S. is uh, in Gulf waters, and and over 90% of all the species of fish in the Gulf depend on the Louisiana marsh uh, at some point in their life cycle. Yeah. Uh, the Everglades gets a lot more press in terms of a swamp area than Louisiana uh, but in terms of area and importance, uh, the Louisiana marsh just utterly dwarfs the Everglades. Oh, it does. It it really does. I th- I think that's something that, as I talk about it uh, with with audiences around the country, I think they sometimes they seem to be surprised that uh, that South Louisiana is so much uh, uh, the marsh down there is so much larger than. Uh, than the Everglades, as, as you said, which gets an awful lot of uh, an awful lot of attention. John, we, we've got a couple of minutes left in this in this segment. I did want to touch on the uh, on influenza and the pandemic. Uh, John wrote a book a few years ago called "The Great Influenza: The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History." And uh, and and John, I know you've served on a number of uh, boards, infectious disease board, disease boards, and so forth. Uh, uh, and this is this is flu season uh, that we're going through, and of course we just uh, just went through uh, the uh, the Ebola uh, crisis here in the United States, as a lot of people seem to have called it. I'd like to get some of your input on uh, just on the world of pandemics. Well, the Ebola crisis, of course, is still going on in Sierra Leone, and we didn't really have a crisis in the United States. We True, had, we had a lot of press. 
we didn't really have a crisis if you come right down to it. Uh, there were, you know, the cases, I think with two exceptions, and those people survived, you know, were, came from Africa or infected in Africa, and, and uh, people who are treated with modern medical techniques or even just hydrated have a much higher percentage, uh, chance of surviving Ebola uh, than some of the statistics from Africa uh, suggest. Yeah, you know, it, Texas is. I mean, the main thing is that twenty, thirty years ago, people were dismissing infectious disease as a as a major threat, and I think people do realize now that that was a mistake, uh, and that infectious disease, you know, still can kill. Oh, and, absolutely, and and will kill. Um, you know, we have obviously these uh, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are uh, being generated by overuse of antibiotics. Uh, I mean, it, it is, it's a real problem, and I think it's going to be an increasing problem for the, for the healthcare system. And, and probably some resources need to be redirected uh, into that area. Do you think the Ebola scare, or whatever you want to call it, is going to uh, uh, help drive some of that, that new resource placement into pandemic uh, research? I would hope so, but I'm not sure that it's the case. Uh, I think the uh, threat of bioterrorism... Uh, John, I'm going to cut you off there real quick. We, we have come up on the, uh, the end of the segment. You're listening okay. to Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge. And, John, we'll continue... Uh, after this message with with your thoughts there. Welcome back. This is Dale Stewart. You're tuned to Nature's Edge and we're having an interesting discussion today with our uh, with our special guest, Mr. John Barry. Uh, John is an author. He is a uh, interested in, in wetlands and, and water issues. He is a, uh, we were talking just before the break about pandemics a little bit, and and uh, and I, I do want to just finish up one thing there with John. The people don't seem to understand these these new viruses. They seem to uh, they seem to 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 change their uh, their abilities. Uh, Fairly regular, huh? Well, I mean, viruses do mutate rapidly, uh, more so than bacteria, and bacteria give us enough problem. Uh, Influenza is one of the fastest mutating viruses in existence, and that is one of the reasons, or the reason, why uh, pandemics remain a threat from influenza. The one that I wrote about in 1918, according to a Nobel laureate, killed between 50 and 100 million people, uh, and that was in a world with a population of 28% of what it is today. Uh, and, and frankly, an influenza pandemic would overwhelm something like that, uh, would overwhelm the healthcare system. And until you got vaccines, you would have, uh, unfortunately, probably death rates similar to 1918. Yeah, and the uh, and pandemics seem to they they seem to come in waves. Uh, is is that your experience? Uh, 
Well, influenza does. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure that the uh, the yeah, others should... uh, do. Uh, you know, obviously you have. Well, you go back into the Middle Ages. You look at uh, bubonic plague. Uh, I guess that that was sort of ongoing, and 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 but the waves were were stretched out over really over decades. Whereas uh, in the influenza pandemics in the past, there have been they go back about as far into history as we can look, but we have actual real data on them going back about 300 years, and uh, all of them seem to have come in waves separated by a few months. John, I know uh, a lot of people may not realize, but you really started out your your uh, your career as a football coach, correct? Yeah, <laughs> and, that's uh, true, and people down here, some people in New Orleans think that's the most important thing I ever did. I was a coach on probably the best two-lane team since 1948. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, it was 40 years ago, and it, when I talk about it now, it reminds me how old I am. Oh, I know, but I, uh, I remember those days, uh, even a beating of LSU. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's for a lot of my Louisiana listeners down there who are, who are huge LSU fans. But, John, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your success as an author. I mean, and, and you, have, you have had many, and uh, uh, you have a, a new book, or a, uh, and I, I guess is out. Is, is Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, is it on the street? Uh, yeah, that came out actually uh, uh, more than a year ago. Okay. So that's certainly available. Tell me a little uh, about that, that about Roger Williams and and sort of where because you really you really touch on church, state, and the birth of liberty in that book, correct? Uh, the subtitle that's the subtitle. Yeah. Uh, Williams was the was a Puritan minister, uh, renowned for his piety. Yet he was also the first person to articulate in a modern way. Uh, both separation of church and state. He was for absolute, total separation. And uh, at the same time, he was really first person to start talking about individual liberty in a way that we would recognize it. Uh, his mentor was a guy named Sir Edward Cook, who was the most, uh, probably the most important judge in English history. Uh, among the precedents Cook set were judicial review of legislative acts, the use of habeas corpus to protect individual freedom. Uh, no, uh, you know, you can only try someone once for the same crime. No double jeopardy. But the most, uh, the, the important thing he ever said, probably, he's a guy who ruled from the bench that the house of everyone is as his castle, and that sense of individual rights and the idea that you leave people alone that sort of ran through Roger Williams' veins uh, and you put that together with the religious wars that were going on uh, 400 years ago when Christians were killing Christians because of the way they worshipped Christ uh, it, it, he didn't like the mixing of politics and religion he, uh, he felt, maybe in today's terms, you would say that he knew that when you mix religion and politics, you get politics. 
Um, he felt that the only way to protect the purity of religion was to completely separate it from the state, because he considered the state corrupt. He felt that any connection between the church and the state would corrupt the church. Uh, and that coupled, again, with the idea that you don't force someone to do anything, then you know, that led to his idea of separating church and state. Well, he was certainly one of our uh, great political thinkers of his time, sounds like. Oh, I think of any time. I, you know, he's hardly a household name. Yeah, right. And and yet, I believe if you, uh, I, I think most historians consider him within the profession. Uh, probably more stuff has been written about him than any other figure before the revolution. Uh, he came over here in the uh, early 1600s from from England. Uh, as I say, he was a Puritan minister. The uh, Virtually the day he arrived, he was offered the ministry of the Boston Church, which was the most important post in America of its kind, and he turned it down because he told them they weren't pure enough. And yet he ended up, as I say, articulating total, absolute separation of church and state. Uh, Yeah, I was just going to say, and it seems like even today that those... uh those lines are still there that, that divide uh, that divide us somewhat on on uh, between uh, between religion and and uh, and politics. Uh, well, that's certainly uh, certainly that's the case. You know, it's funny. I've gotten some uh, some notes from some of the most religious, I'm mean, conservative, most conservative religious figures in in the country. Uh, one who was a major uh, became a major issue in the not in this last election, but in the one before that. Uh, and you know, they they told me that reading the book on Williams has made them rethink their own positions. These are these are people who believed that we are a Christian nation uh, and that. Uh, there should be more Christianity in the schools and and in government. Uh, who, you know, their views were totally opposite Williams, but at least reading the book made them rethink their position. Absolutely. Well, John, I we've got about a minute left, and I, I just I want to recommend to all of my listeners there's that that you pick up some of John's books. You can pick up the Great Influenza. We talked a little bit about uh, pandemic and. Uh, uh, the book Rising Tide, which which really talks about uh, the Mississippi River and uh, uh, and and its its place in what's going on in in South Louisiana. And early on, John, you had a you wrote a book about football, didn't you? And 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 uh, called Football and Other Blood Sports. Was, was yeah, that, politics, was, football, and other blood. There you sports, go. Yeah. I, I I knew there was another another name there to uh, involved with it. John Barry, I certainly appreciate you taking uh, time out of your busy schedule and spending uh, spending it with us here on Nature's Edge. Until well, thanks. It's been a it's been a pleasure, and believe me, if there's one place in the world that's on Nature's Edge, it's South Louisiana. I could not agree more. This is Dale Stewart, and until next time, I will see you in the wild. Thank you, John. Thank you.